This is MI Roommates, a podcast where we sit down with guests of different backgrounds and expertise to analyze and hopefully understand current issues. I'm your host, Matt Laveau, sitting down today with James Skinner, founder and executive director at Kanzuk International, to talk about Kanzuk, a cultural, economic, and political community that comprises Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. What can this community do for the English-speaking world, and will it soon become a reality? Mr. Skinner, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really grateful to be here. Before we get started, can you talk a little bit about yourself, what Kanzig is all about, and what the mission of your organization, Kanzig International, is? Yeah, sure. Uh, a little bit about me. Uh, you can probably tell from the accent that I was originally born in the UK, uh, in South Wales. Got very interested in Kanzig when I emigrated to Australia a long time ago, back in 2011, and learned about the free movement and trade arrangement that exists between Australia and New Zealand. Emigrated then to Canada back in 2013, where I basically set up Kanzig International as an organization in 2015. And the purpose of the organization Essentially, uh, in a nutshell, it is to promote three common aspects between these countries, and that would be uh, migration accords, whereby citizens can move freely between these countries for work and travel purposes. Uh, free trade, whereby you know th- these countries will be able to establish free trade arrangements and removing barriers to commerce and removing tariffs. And then, of course, foreign policy cooperation. So that would involve enhancing the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance and working with our already established uh, framework that we have through the United Nations Security Council and other foreign policy formats as well. So, um, so really, the whole Kanza concept is essentially to promote, um, you know, closer diplomatic ties between Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. Hence, the acronym Kanza. And founded in 2015, but so far, it's uh, it's gained a lot of publicity. And uh, I'm happy to talk to you about it today. And what I find fascinating is that Kanzuk has wide support in the Commonwealth as well as, as the UK, and we did not see this even 10 years ago. So what happened? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, to be honest, when I, when I started the organization and started really advocating for Kanzuk back in 2015, uh, the amount of growth has been exponential beyond what I could have ever imagined. And I, I think really... Uh, what has happened, especially in the last decade or so, is that I, I think through grassroots advocacy, political advocacy, lobbying, a lot of uh, techniques essentially to really promote Kanzuk and, and the opportunities and the benefits of it has really just been very much done from a public and political level to the point where people realize the benefits that it will have on their lives, regardless of what age group you may be, regardless of what p- political affiliation you may have, people see that Kanzuk is, is a real step forward. And of course, we've had a lot of beneficial factors happen as well. You know, here in Canada, it certainly helps that the leader of the opposition now, Erin O'Toole, is very supportive of Kanzuk. You know, in New Zealand, it's been incredibly uh, opportunistic for us that, that we've had uh, the leader of the opposition there as well also come out in favor of Kanzuk. You know, the, the government in the United Kingdom right now under Boris Johnson also in favor of Kanzuk. And then, of course, the Brexit vote back in 2016, that's opened up a wide variety of opportunities for the United Kingdom to explore avenues outside of Europe. So there's been a lot of cascading incidents and events that have occurred that have really promoted Kanzuk. And that tied in with, uh, you know, Kanzuk International's lobbying efforts and speaking with politicians, diplomats, members of the public, senior cabinet ministers, all the advocacy work that we've done, it's all sort of cascaded into this momentum now that's building forward. And I think we'll really see Kanzuk be a, a real alternative, a real initiative in the future. And what I find interesting is that, as you say, like there is the ancestral root in all these countries, but specifically in Canada, Quebec is different, right? Because it has that French history, but we still do find strong support in that province, correct? 
We do, yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of people think that Quebec is is very French nationalistic, and 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 that's it. Very Quebecois nationalistic, and and that's it. That they wouldn't explore anything outside of the French language, and that's a, a stereotype that I find is, is is quite outdated today. Because from our own polling, we've actually found that there's about sixty percent support uh, in Quebec for uh, closer ties, especially with migration accords with Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and the United Kingdom. And even about three days ago, uh, I, I believe the Macdonald Laurier Institute published a report, which I encourage everybody to go on their website and, and read it. And of course, they can also go on kanzak.com. We've also got a link to the article and an explanation about what it is. Uh, but that report also found that there was um, very close um, sort of feelings and, and mutual respect to Australia and the United Kingdom from Quebec. Um, so the Macdonald Laurier Institute actually polled Canadians to see which countries in the world they feel most favorably towards. And of course, Australia and the UK, unfortunately, New Zealand wasn't polled in this uh, in this survey, but Australia and UK came out very positively, of course, because of the close affiliations we have already. Uh, but when it came down to province by province, um, it was British Columbia who favored uh, who, who had the most favorable opinion towards the United Kingdom the most. And then in second place was actually Quebec. Quebec actually uh, had the second most favorable opinion towards the United Kingdom of any of the other provinces, including Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, the Atlantic provinces. So this concept that, you know, or I should say this this uh, th- this idea that the Quebecois are a very sort of isolated, uh, I, I think it's it, it's certainly a sort of an outdated concept. And I do think the, you know, Quebec, for example, does see the merit in promoting further Kanzak ties. Mr. Skinner, as you said, you're from England, but in the UK, there is obviously England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. Are there any worries that Kanzak itself might be, there might be trouble for Kanzak if, say, Scotland or Northern Ireland secedes from the UK? Yes, it's, it's a good question. I, I think obviously it makes things a little more difficult if that were to happen. Of course, it's a lot easier to negotiate Kanzak when the UK is uh, one singular union, as, as it has been really since 1801. So it, it, it's a lot easier to negotiate a, from a UK perspective when all four um uh, all, all four nations of the United Kingdom are united in that sense. Were it to happen that Scotland and Northern Ireland were to separate from the United Kingdom, yeah, it, it would certainly add a, a degree of complication. Um, but at the same time as well, given that we've seen support across the United Kingdom, and I, I can't remember the statistics off the top of my head, but you know, polling in Scotland and Northern Ireland has shown as well that there's significant public support for Kanzak uh, in those nations. So um, I, I wouldn't think it, be, it, it would be too drastic of an issue should Scotland and Northern Ireland secede from the UK. It does add a, a layer of complication, but at the same time, the public support is certainly there in those countries. Um, so even though that complication would exist, uh, it's, it's, it, all in likelihood, Kanzuk would still go ahead, uh, even if it were to come to that. And where does the foundation of Kanzuk come from? Because as you said, there are previous agreements within these countries. Yeah, I mean, the idea of Kanzak, um, I, I mean, long before I was born, but I, I believe the, the, original, the original coining of the term was back in the 1960s. Um, and it, it was essentially coined to describe the loose affiliation and, and voting records of Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the United Kingdom in the United Nations. Uh, and it, it was sort of generated as a, as a term to jestfully play on the way that these countries used to vote the same way for United Nations resolutions. Um, and I found it very interesting that, 
you know, even back in the 1960s, these countries were very closely affiliated, uh, not only in terms of culture and ancestry and history and, you know, so, sort of uh, political development on the international stage, but they were also closely affiliated in terms of the way that they voted in, in, in the UN. So for me, back in 2015, when I founded Kansas International, I, I thought that, you know, the term Kansas itself and, and the very meaning behind it had something more to offer the world. So instead of it being just a simple uh, terminology uh, that was thrown around loosely to describe the way that these countries would, off, you know, sometimes work together. I figured what better way to show, you know, how these countries are, are so closely affiliated than to really develop Kanzuk beyond just a terminology into something that really can relate to people uh, on a personal, social and economic level by enhancing facilitated migration, free trade and foreign policy cooperation between these countries. So since the 1960s, anyway, the, you know, the term Kanzuk has certainly come a long way. As you just mentioned, one of the big reasons is the, the flow of immigration. Are there any worries that there could be, say, an influx of immigrants from Canada moving to England? It's a really good question. Uh, short answer really is no. And I, I think what we have to look to in that sense is the current arrangement that Australia and New Zealand have right now. Um, so Australia and New Zealand, many people might be unaware of this, but Australia and New Zealand effectively have, have a form of a mini Kanzuk between them, whereby Australian citizens right now can live and work in New Zealand and New Zealand citizens can live and work in Australia under an arrangement that they have uh, negotiated back in the 1970s called the Trans-Tasman Travel Arrangement, which effectively uh, permits freedom of movement for those two countries. But at the same time, there are also caveats that one must not have a criminal record, one must not have an infectious health condition or be, uh, have a terrorist affiliation or be a national security risk in any way, shape or form. And, and they sort of monitor this through the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance that each of these two countries shares, along with Canada and the United Kingdom already. So if we look to that example, um, you, you know, you are effectively talking um, two countries which have very similar characteristics with uh, such as Canada and the UK, being that Australia has a population six times that of uh, New Zealand, whereas the, the UK only has a population double that of Canada. Um, but at the same time, immigration flows between those two countries have been relatively similar over the past 50 or 60 years or so. Um, and actually, you'll be hard pressed to find many Australians or New Zealanders who en masse really oppose the Trans-Tasman Travel Agreement because it certainly helped out both countries in terms of economic stress and recessions and giving each country and businesses access to an increased labor market pool. So it's been incredibly beneficial for both countries involved. And it would certainly be the same for Canada and the UK as well, granting that opportunity for citizens in both of those countries to live and work in those countries where they deem where they wish to do so and businesses can employ and recruit from an increased labor market pool without going through the arduous process of the immigration controls that we have right now providing citizens meet the current uh, standards that are set by the trans-tasman travel agreement meaning that if a citizen is a law-abiding citizen does not have any terrorist affiliations, does not have an infectious health condition, does not have a serious criminal record, then of course they can move freely. So, um, you, you know, as you put it, the concept of uh, a lot of British people moving to Canada or a lot of Canadians moving to the UK, uh, very unlikely to happen. And, and, you know, the record of Australia and New Zealand uh, shows that, you know, migration between these countries uh, would be relatively equal under a free movement agreement. And so I want to talk about the politics of it. Um, sure. Do you believe that Kansas has bipartisan support between conservatives and liberal politicians in these four countries, or that it perhaps slants more towards the right of center? 
I, I would say, uh, yeah, to be truthful, certainly right now, uh, it, it is, I, I think it is slanting more right of centre. And I think, you know, we've seen that uh, here in Canada, you know, for example, um, the Canadian Conservative Party under Erin O'Toole have openly embraced Kanzak. I think at their party convention back in 2018, Kanzak was adopted with 97% party support from delegates. And of course, Erin O'Toole made it a specific part of his campaign when he's running for leadership. Of course, then he won. And ever since then, he's been advocating for Kanzak since. Uh, whereas from the Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau, we've heard very little about Kanzak. We've had a few MPs here and there from the Liberal Party who've you know, ex express an inclination in favor of it, but, you know, very little from the party front. And, you know, th that could also be described as well in the UK, you know, under Boris Johnson, the Conservative government, they're very much in favor of Kanzak. Um, but, but the Labour Party itself, as official party platform, has, has been, you know, advocating for it minimally. So I would say, though, that politically, I would say, yes, right now it is leaning right of centre. But publicly, I would say what, what's really good is that we have got it right down the middle, whereby publicly there are people on the right of centre, the left of centre, those in the centre, all of whom support it because they see the absolute merits and the benefits that will come from Kansas. So, you know, they see the benefits of having facilitated migration and the opportunities that can afford for work and travel. They see the benefits of trade and they see the benefits of increasing foreign policy cooperation, especially with rising threats like China and North Korea. Iran and, uh, you know, other hostile nations to the West in that way. So we certainly have the support from across the spectrum in that sense, publicly and politically, there is a little bit more work to do. But at the same time, that needle is slowly moving to the centre. And I think the, uh, the all party parliamentary group that's established in the United Kingdom right now, uh, specifically for Kanzak, um, we're delighted to be an advisor on that APPG and we are moving the needle. Uh, towards policy in the UK for Kanzak. But at the same time, that APPG has members um, from a, a wide variety of parties in the UK. And there are many, you know, on that APPG right now, there are members from the Conservative Party, the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, even the Scottish Nationalist Party. So, you know, there is certainly, you know, where, whereas public support right now is very much in the centre for Kanzak, there is certainly work to be done on the political side of things, moving that needle from right of centre to the centre. But we are seeing that shift happen. And the APPG in the United Kingdom, with support from all the parties in the United Kingdom or vast majority of the parties, is testimony to that, that we are eventually getting it to the centre in terms of a political perspective. That's interesting. And do you think that the tie to the monarchy from the Commonwealth actually makes Kenzuk more desirable? I think for many it does. I think obviously a lot of people in Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the UK do have a strong affiliation and a strong support for the monarchy. Um, there, there are many who don't, of course, but I, I think the, you know, one of the many benefits of Kanzuk is that really, if you are supportive of the monarchy, then Kanzuk works for you because Queen Elizabeth II is, of course, the head of state. Uh, if you are, for example, not supportive of the monarchy, that's okay too, because the monarchy is not an essential ingredient for Kanzuk to work. Um, you know, for example, Australia and New Zealand tomorrow could you know, hypothetically become republics. And of course, the Trans-Tasman Travel Agreement and the, the trade, agree trade agreement that they have with each other would still function effectively and just as well. In, in the same way as, uh, you know, security and intelligence measures between these four countries through the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance would still function tomorrow were the monarchy to absolve in, in, in a hypothetical world. So I, I think it does add that element of kinship between these countries, um, you know, that like Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the UK are united in some way by a head of state uh, under Queen Elizabeth II. But, you know, 
it, it's not an essential component that the monarchy is there. So that also works for those who might have more Republican affiliations uh, in the Kansas countries too. And some of the opposition uh, to the community say that this is based on Anglo-Saxon race or that it is racist. What would you say to that? I, I wouldn't say anything really. I would I'd probably just laugh, to be honest. I mean, it, for me, it, it is a bit of a a ludicrous argument to suggest that these uh, that the Kansas countries are, you know, solely forming an alliance in this way just because of their race. To me, that's up there with with any tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. I mean, for example, the European Union, as far as I've remembered, and the last time I checked, is uh, you know a union of twenty seven member states, all of whom, as far as I can tell, have majority Caucasian populations, and all of them have Caucasian leaders. But nobody criticizes the European Union for being a racist conglomeration of nations, uh, and rightly so. It, it's simply a nations, it's a group of nations who have like minded interests and want to promote uh, prosperity and, to a degree, a, a form of you know, federalism amongst themselves. And it's nothing to do with race in that sense. So Kansas should be treated no differently. It is simply a, a, a union or an alliance of like-minded allies who want to formulate migration and trade accords and foreign policy accords for the betterment of their societies, whether that's through travel, uh, trade, business opportunities, economic prosperity, national security, whatever it may be. So the concept of it being an, uh, you know, an Anglo-Saxon centric um, idea, I think is a very narrow-minded and unintelligent way of looking at it. And it's also, I, I think, somewhat quite disrespectful to the other non-Anglo-Saxon races. And then there's many of them in the Kansas countries who would also have benefits under this. For example, you know, the First Nations, the Métis, the Inuit here in Canada. Uh, of course, you've got the Maori in New Zealand. You've got the Aboriginals as well in, in Australia, all of whom would qualify, you know, to, to experience the benefits and the opportunities under Kansas. And I, I think simply labeling it as a, you know, an Anglo-Saxon centric idea, I think is, is nothing more than simply um, an unintelligent argument that really does avoid all the benefits and all the reality that is present with actually, you know, introducing a Kansas initiative in that way. So, you know, how I react to it is, is, is really, you know, half laughing, half just disbelief that someone could, you know, ignore the facts in that way and, and, and you know, simply promote such a preposterous idea. And do you think like countries like the United States or South Africa could ever be part of Kansas? Really good question. Really good question. And we get asked this a lot. It, it is absolutely possible. And it's a bit of a convoluted answer. So the reason that we are promoting Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the UK right now is simply because these countries are so like minded and also very comparable in terms of economic and cultural and social affiliations. So, for example, the GDP per capita between these countries is very similar. Their human rights records are very similar. Their crime rates are very low. Their unemployment rates are very low. So effectively, you've got four nations who are very, very similar in, in a multitude of socioeconomic circumstances that would make Kanzuk work were there to be a free movement or free trade arrangement introduced between them. The problem is then is that when you start introducing countries like the United States, for example, the United States is a, is a big problem for two reasons. One, I'm not entirely convinced the United States would really be interested in joining 
an alliance such as this, especially with, uh, you know, a monarchy as the head of state, because the whole foundation of the United States dating back to, you know, really 1776 is that they broke away from the monarchy and they didn't, they they wanted to pursue their own independent destiny. So to say to the Americans, you know, let's go back to a form where the queen is your head of state. I I think they they would probably, you know, chuckle and turn away um, at at the nearest opportunity. Whereas you have country like South Africa, as you mentioned, South Africa is, uh, you know, a great country. And I myself have familial ties with South Africa. My fiance is South African. So I often visit South Africa and I love South Africa. It's a great country. But unfortunately, right now, uh, facilitated migration or migration agreements with South Africa would open up, a, you know, a host of issues that effectively becomes a bit of a Pandora's box at this time. So, for example, the, the crime rate in South Africa right now statistically is much, much higher uh, than the Kansas countries. In fact, I think the murder rate in South Africa right now, tragically, uh, is is higher than all of the Kansas countries combined, uh, something like five or sixfold. So to offer free movement to, you know, a, a country where it's got a certain sort of uh, domestic issue like that is a little bit risky as well. And of course, you also have to consider as well, a country like South Africa, the wage rate, I think in South Africa right now, the last time I checked not too long ago, wages in South Africa are about 73% less uh, than what they are in the Kansas countries on average. So if you're, uh, for, for example, working in South Africa uh, as a doctor, for example, you might eventually think to yourself, well, why am I living in South Africa when I could get paid 73% more for doing the same job in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, or the UK? And then, of course, it's not just doctors, it's architects, it's mechanics, it's very skilled individuals then who then have that mentality and would then look to emigrate to you know, a Kansas country. And what that effectively causes is a brain drain uh, on South Africa, whereby the best and brightest leave the country. And then South Africa actually ends up in a much worse off situation than if it were to not actually join Kansas in the first place. So it's a very delicate balance to you know, sort of suggest which country should join Kansas and, and which couldn't. You know, certainly, I think the Kansas countries have it perfectly laid out, whereby they are so similar in socioeconomic circumstances that they would work under Kansas arrangements for facilitated migration and trade and so on and so forth. But to have countries like the United States and South Africa, even India, uh, Singapore, other countries which on the surface might seem like good candidates when you actually get down to the, you know, the you know the grassroots of, of these issues and look at the socioeconomic circumstances of these countries, there are problematic issues that arise. So if there was to be talk of other countries joining Kansak in the future, uh, certainly those issues would need to be addressed. And of course, I myself as well would favour a democratic vote uh, from the public of Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the UK before any other countries were considered to join such an arrangement. So either that would be unanimous decision of the democratic elect- democratically elected governments of these countries or even by a, a democratic referendum. In these countries, you know, I would certainly favor if Kansak was to was to become, for example, Kansak Plus. I certainly think there should be at least some sort of democratic accountability to the people of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK before other countries are considered to join. But saying that, though, if there are other countries to join, there would have to be socioeconomic factors considered and addressed and rectified before we could even go down that route. And so, from Kansak International, have you guys shown that? these um if all these four countries were were tied economically that the gdp would boost in in all four countries 
Yes, certainly. I, I mean, it, it, it would naturally do so just under the simple ma mathematics of economics, really. I mean, right right now, just simply having, um, you know, a mutual trading arrangement between these countries, you're effectively talking about 3.5 trillion US dollars worth of trade between these countries, uh, with countries with a combined, uh, a, a combined GDP of about 6.5 trillion US dollars. So to simply have these trading arrangements whereby you could reduce the barriers to commerce and reduce tariffs, remove quotas, uh, certainly it would be magnitudinally beneficial for businesses and also magnitudinally beneficial for businesses in the sense that they, they would have an increased labor market pool to choose from under migration accords between these countries. So it would certainly promote economic growth, certainly promote you know, economic prosperity, certainly promote business opportunities, travel opportunities for working professionals. So, you know, just by basic mathematics, I'm sure, you know, actual full-time economists could look into it further and, you know, confirm what I'm saying. But just on the basic simple mathematics of, uh, you know, a Kansak agreement in this way, you know, the growth opportunities there economically are, are magnitudinal, as they have been really for Australia and New Zealand by imposing similar measures of this sort. I want to talk about the difference between Kanzuk and the European Union, as you mentioned. It is not a political project, correct? That is correct. Yeah. So um, one of the things, obviously, I think contributed to the Brexit referendum, and I'm sure other people will have different opinions about it. But from my perspective, I think one of the major contributions to um, the Leave vote in the Brexit referendum of 2016 was simply that uh, a, a a lot of the British public saw the avenue that the European Union was going down in the sense that it was making advancements towards, as they say, an, uh, you know, an ever closer union, uh, somewhat of a federalist state in that sense. And of course, that, that's been shown since uh, the European Economic Community became the European Union and since the United Kingdom joined in 1973. Uh, for example, what started off as a simple trading arrangement between these countries eventually formulated into you know, the European Union as it is today adopting its own national anthem, it adopted its own currency, it adopted its own parliament, uh, it, adopted, it adopted its own court system, it adopted its own centralized banking system. So of course, what we've seen with the European Union is this advancement towards somewhat of a federalist state. And of course, only time will tell to see how far down the line uh, the European Union pursues that avenue. But with Kanzak, it would be nothing of the sort. We at Kanzak International, we have always said from the very start that this would be, it would have similar aspects to the European Union in, in terms of promoting closer collaboration between these, these nations, in terms of free trade and foreign policy and, and migration. But at the same time, fundamentally and absolutely, from now until the end of time, I hope, it would simply be uh, an alliance of like-minded nation states working together as independent sovereign nations. So there would be no parliament, there would be no centralized currency. They would effectively operate on the same circumstances as what Australia and New Zealand do right now, whereby they have this, these migration agreements, they have trade, they work together for foreign policy, they work for security and intelligence and the Five Eyes Alliance. But of course, Australia and New Zealand are independent sovereign nations. You would never say a New Zealander is Australian and you would never say an Australian is a New Zealander. They are proud of their heritage. They're proud of their cultures. Um, and, and of course, 
that should remain that way under a CANZIC agreement too. So by simply having Canada and the UK join on to, you know, the agreements that Australia and New Zealand already have in place, it would forever function as independent sovereign nations who would have absolute control and negotiation power from a nationalist perspective, not just simply from a, a supranationalist perspective, like what we see with the European Union. So there would be similarities with the EU, of course, but it would be monumentally different to the political avenue that the European Union is going, whereby these CANZIC countries would always be sovereign and independent. And Mr. Skinner, to end this podcast, my question to you is, do you believe that Kanza can be the beginning of a new social contract between the English-speaking world? To some degree, yes. I mean, I think so. I think, you know, obviously the fact that we are majority English-speaking does unite us in that sense. And it, it, of course, makes avenues for work and employment incredibly easy. Uh, incredibly easy. You know, for example, one of, the, one of the hindrances that the UK had with the European Union is that if you want to live or work in France, then of course you have to speak French. If you want to live and work in Germany, you have to speak German, Latvia, you have to speak Latvian. But one of the major benefits for Canadians under Kanzuk is that you can move to the United Kingdom or Australia or New Zealand and feel right at home as soon as you as soon as you uh, as soon as you move there, as soon as you get a house there, as soon as you get a job there, that there's very little needed and required in terms of assimilation into these countries. And I think that's incredibly attractive for a lot of people in Canada. And of course, as well, throughout the remainder of the Kansas countries as well, it just makes simply the, the Kansas initiative so easy to implement, not only in terms of negotiating trade arrangements that we each share, you know, the same majority language, but also as well, that it's so easy to assimilate in these countries where members of the public to move. But as well, also, I think it's important to, to circle back on the original issue that, you know, yes, it does help that these countries are majority English speaking, but there's also incredible benefits there as well for the Quebecois, you know, who are French speaking, that uh, there's, a, there's a multitude of languages as well all across the United Kingdom you know, Welsh being, uh, you know, one of the official languages and widely spoken where I was born and raised in Wales. And of course, you've got Scots Gaelic, Sky Gaelic, Irish, Cornish, Manx. There's a variety of languages all across the UK who would also equally benefit under a Kansas free free movement, free trade and foreign policy arrangements. Uh, same with Australia and New Zealand, you know, with the different languages they have down there with the indigenous communities. So even though it is certainly, there's a wide variety of benefits for those who speak English. There's also a, a wide variety and an equal number of benefits for those who, who also have uh, different first languages as well. So it's, uh, it's mutually beneficial for everybody concerned. Mr. Skinner, thank you for your time. I really learned a lot about Kanzuk, and I think that many Miguel students listening to this podcast will make it an aspiration of theirs to make this a reality. Yeah, and I appreciate being on the show, and thank you very much for having me. And uh, yeah, if you if you if you need me to come back and uh, do some more podcasts, I'm always happy to. So thanks very much. Thank you, Mr. Skinner. That's it for this edition of MR Meets. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Miguel International Review for more up-to-date insight and analysis of global issues, international affairs.